welcome to the Park Road Podcast for January 5th, 2020. This morning we hear from Ladane McLeese Pulaski with a witness and experience entitled Telling My Story to Myself and Dan McClintock with a witness in preaching entitled Mythic Narrative in the Creation Story. Part sermon series based on research by the Scottish scholar Ninian Smart. In examining the major world religions, Smart identified seven distinct ways that people experience God or religion, and these seven ways are common to all of those major religions. Certain of these ways of experiencing God may be more familiar to you personally than other ways. Hopefully, as we move through this series, it will inform your personal religious experience as well as our way of engaging God together as a community of faith. The dimension we're examining this morning is mythic narrative. If you're not sure what mythic narrative refers to, have no fear. A week ago, I wasn't too sure myself. Ladane will begin this morning by sharing something of her own story, and then I'll speak to mythic narrative in the creation story. L-E- Capital D, A Y N E. I can close my eyes right now and hear my mother's voice spelling my name. Every time I enrolled in a new school, visited a new doctor, signed up for soccer, softball, or cheerleading, got a library card, or simply met a new neighbor, I heard it. L E, capital D. A-Y-N-E. I never learned to struggle. I never struggled to learn to spell it because all I had to do was stop and remember her voice spelling it out. And it's only fair that it's her voice that I hear because the name is her invention. She decided long before I was born that when she had a daughter, a choice she was not leaving up to God, When she had a daughter, her name would be Ladane. I had told that story for years when I found myself at a day-long clergy women's retreat. Most of us were Christian, but there was one lone rabbi among us, and to my delight, I was paired with her for an extended get-to-know-you exercise in the afternoon. First, she shared her story with me. She was, at the time we met, about 70. She had grown up long before women could be ordained as rabbis. She remembered people telling her as a child, with a head like that, you should have been a boy. By the time ordination was a possibility, she was a mother, and it felt impossible. By the time the kids were grown, it felt too late. She was too old, surely. But finally, 
Very late in life, she accepted the call that she'd always felt, and she'd gone to rabbinical school. She was, when I met her, serving a small synagogue with great joy and delight. When it was my turn to share, I started with the story of my name. After hearing it, she said, without an ounce of irony, oh, your mother called you into being. What? Not a response I'd ever gotten before. That's the Hebraic understanding, she said. When you name something, you call it into being. Let there be light, and there was light. Let there be Ladane, and well, here I am. I called my mom very excitedly that night to share the story. And even now, years later, she still sometimes says to me with wonder in her voice, do you remember what the rabbi said about how I called you into being? How we tell our stories to ourselves matters. This past October, I attended my 30th college reunion. I wanted to be there in particular because one of my favorite professors is retiring at the end of the academic year, and there was to be a reception in his honor that I wanted to be at. His name, and I'm not making this up, is Dr. Einstein. At the reception, there were numerous speakers who have followed in his footsteps to become psychology professors. Gil Einstein has taught for over 40 years, so some of the speakers graduated decades ago, while others were ra rather recent grads. There was, nonetheless, a very strong theme among their talks. They all said something along the lines of, he was so much more than a professor. He saw potential in me that I did not see in myself and gave me ways to develop it. He was a friend. He was a mentor. I model myself and the way I teach and the way I interact with students after him. When Dr. Einstein spoke following the testimonies of his former students, he characteristically spent his time giving credit to the people who had shaped him. He began with his parents. His father was a German Jew who escaped Germany just ahead of the Holocaust. His mother was a French Catholic woman who was part of the effort to rescue Jews leaving Nazi Germany, one of whom she fell in love with and married. Gil was born in France and moved to the United States with his family when he was four years old. He also spoke quite movingly of his PhD advisor. It's important to understand that he'd written this speech weeks beforehand, so he was not responding to what his students had said about him when he described his advisor with something along the lines of, he was so much more than a professor. He saw potential in me that I didn't see in myself, and he gave me ways to develop it. He was a friend. He was a mentor. I model myself and the way I teach and the way I interact with students after him. He also shared that his advisor had died tragically young at the age of 49. The next day, Dr. Einstein and his wife invited all of us to gather at their home. When I had a chance to speak to him, I pointed all of this out to him, the connections between what his students had shared about him and what he had shared about his advisor. I mentioned that though his advisor had died far too young, 
he was still impacting the world in very real ways. His ways of teaching, his ways of interacting with students, his ways of developing young minds are being modeled in college classrooms today. Dr. Einstein responded somewhat wistfully, that's a lovely thought. No, I said, it's not a lovely thought. It is a concrete reality. I do hope he heard me because it matters as he steps away from his life's work that he can tell his story to himself in this powerful, truthful way. Tom and Kate and I are just back from our annual visit to Florida to see Tom's parents. His twin brother, his wife, and two kids always join us as well. And those of you who know Tom can imagine the hijinks that ensue when not one but two Dr. Pulaski's are present. Actually three, because my sister-in-law also has a PhD. So we have three Dr. Pulaski's along with three children who've inherited their quick wits and odd senses of humor it's pretty much a continual skit. Sometimes when we're together, we take a look at the family slides and we laugh at the way they repeat through this very predictable cycle. There's Christmas, then Easter, then family vacation, their younger brother Phil's birthday, which often happened during the vacation, Halloween, Tom and Don's birthday, and then Christmas over again. Over and over and over, until high school graduation. Our yearly Yuletide visits have taken on some of the same sorts of patterning. We all sleep in the same bedrooms. We all take the same nature trail at the same state park. We visit the same beach. The kids get in, we don't. We're always amazed by how warm and sunny it is in Florida in December. We each have our own assigned places at the table. We even eat the same foods, which my mother-in-law steadfastly refuses to allow anyone else to help with. Every year we have spaghetti, chicken and dumplings, black beans and rice, pot roast, macaroni and cheese, a big Christmas dinner with ham, potato salad, and coleslaw, and of course, a New Year's dinner with peas, greens, and cornbread, which my sister annually refuses to eat just the last one. We've added three kids along the way, each of whom also has an assigned place to sleep and an assigned place at the table. But there's so much sameness that you could be tempted to think that the pattern is unbreakable. But several years ago, as I put my hand into my father-in-law's as he began the nightly prayer, I always sit directly to his left the sudden thought came to me, this is not forever. This is not forever. That moment changed me. I started insisting that now that my in-laws are no longer able to visit us in the summer, that we always go to see them. I've tried to visit my own parents more often. I've tried to savor moments that feel like they've happened a thousand times before and feel destined to happen a thousand more. Because I really do remember 
this is not forever. My good friend Steve Jacobson died at the beginning of December. He was a brilliant man who earned a PhD in physics from Cornell. He did not suffer fools or foolishness gladly, though he did always manage to disabuse people with grace and humor. I remember well a conversation we had one day when another colleague came into the office and was excitingly telling us about a TV show she had seen before about multiple alien visitations to Earth. His critique of the conversation was a little strong. It included a mathematical formula involving the estimated age and size of the universe and went from there. Let's just say there were a lot of zeros involved. So Steve lived in a fact-based world. And yesterday afternoon, I pulled out the worship bulletin his wife had sent to me. Since we've been away, I only just got to it. There was one full page of the service of quotes of things that Steve had written. The final sentence in large print, the universe is fundamentally mysterious. We can live, as Steve reminds me even now, with both a full appreciation of the facts and a deep openness to the mystery. In the beginning, I was called into being. My story will someday come to an end. In the meantime, I pray to live in wonder, awe, and gratitude. May it be so. What do you think of when you hear the word myth? For me, the first things that come to mind are mythic creatures like mermaids, unicorns, dragons, werewolves, vampires, and my personal favorites, Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster. Bigfoot is kind of interesting. This hairy, hugely oversized humanoid creature that lives in the forests of the Pacific Northwest. We've all seen the hazy, poor quality videos that purport to show him lumbering through the trees. I'm not convinced. However, I find Nessie much more intriguing. Do you realize that she was first spotted in Loch Ness in the sixth century? And sightings are still occurring today. Can you imagine? Presumably, 
Today's monsters are the original Nessie's offspring. At any rate, I visited the Scottish Highlands with my family. We drove around the lake, and I can tell you that everyone on the road was all eyes on the lake, hoping to spot Nessie. I can't be sure, but I may have actually seen her. <laughs> You'll be happy to know that in preparing my sermon, I learned that mythic narrative and mythic creatures are not the same thing. My thoughts then turned to Greek mythology, because that's probably where the term myth originated. Perhaps we all have our favorite Greek gods. My favorite is Poseidon, the ruler of the seas. Poseidon, you might remember, was the brother of Zeus. And just as Zeus rolled over, ruled over the land and the sky, Poseidon rolled over the rivers and the seas. Poseidon's palace was said to be at the bottom of the ocean. When he rode over the surface of the water, he rode in a chariot made of a huge seashell, which was drawn by giant seahorses with golden hoofs and manes. Poseidon was always represented carrying a trident or a fish spear with three points. When he struck the sea with his trident, fierce storms would arise. And then with a word, he could quiet the waves and make the surface of the water as smooth as that of a pond. Of course, Poseidon was worshiped most by the people who lived at the seashore. Every Greek city along the coast had a temple to Poseidon, where people came to pray to him for fair weather and happy voyages for themselves and their friends. Would the story of Poseidon qualify as mythic narrative? I think so because it provided people with an explanation for the tempestuousness of the sea, sometimes violently stormy and at other times intensely calm. The story of Poseidon was told to convey meaning, not necessarily to transmit facts. His ever-present trident and seashell chariot drawn by mighty seahorses painted a vivid picture. But that wasn't really the point. The point was that this god of the sea controlled the oceans and his existence explained the storms as well as the periods of calm. Today, we recognize the fantastical nature of Greek mythology, 
with its elaborate stories of gods and goddesses. And so myth has taken on the idea of falsehood. If we call a story a myth, it means it must not be true. However, Russ's friend John Ballinger explains it well when he says, the truth of a mythic narrative is not found in the facts as they're presented, but in the deeper meaning that is conveyed. Myths are stories told not to be less than true, less than real, but more than true, more than real, in order to name what is most true and most real. Myths are not so much about facts, but about truths and deeper meanings. The best definition that I found of mythic narrative is this. Symbolic stories of the distant past that concern cosmogony, the origin of the universe, and cosmology, the nature of the universe, usually connected to belief systems or religion. Symbolic stories of the distant past that concern cosmogony, the origin of the universe, and cosmology, the nature of the universe, usually connected to belief systems or religion. So, what are the deeper truths that can be gleaned from the creation story in Genesis? What are the deeper meanings of our creation story? First, we learn that Genesis was not written as a scientific paper to be taken literally. It's not the facts that count. But as a witness to the fact that God created the universe and God created humankind. We know that the creation story was not to be taken literally because in the very next chapter of Genesis, another somewhat different account of creation is put forth. As with most recorded stories, different accounts reflect different perspectives and different emphases. Does this mean that at a deeper level, the level of meaning and significance that these stories are not true? No. As John Ballinger would say, it may indicate just the opposite, that at the level of meaning and significance, these stories are in fact more real and more true. We know that the days referred to in Genesis 1 don't signify 24-hour periods, but rather that creation occurred over an indefinite period of time. For one thing, we're told that the sun, by which we measure 24-hour days, was not created 
until the fourth day. The scripture itself asserts that with God, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. Again, it's the deeper truth that's important, not the details of how God created the universe, but simply that God did create it. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Creation was accomplished by the word of God. God spoke, and it happened. The first thing that God spoke into being was light. Interestingly, the writer of John's gospel in the New Testament picks up on this theme saying, in the beginning was the word, Jesus, the eternal logos, the word made flesh. And John says that word was the light of the world. Perhaps the greatest mystery in the creation story comes with the creation of humankind, created, we are told, in the image of God. Theologians have debated for centuries about what it means exactly to be created in God's image. In Hebrew thought, the body and the soul are not separate parts of a person, but instead a person is a body and a person is at the same time a soul. The God who says, let us create human beings in our image, in our likeness, has created us, body, mind, and spirit, to be one person, not separate parts, but one whole being. Some have suggested that to, to be created in the image of God is to be given God-like powers, the ability to reason, to ask questions, to communicate. Perhaps if God is love, the possibility of loving as God loves, unconditionally, even sacrificially, perhaps that's what it means to be created in God's image. Finally, the creation story reveals to us that we human beings are given dominion over the fish of the sea, the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Does this mean that we are to plunder and selfishly misuse the world that God has created? No, certainly not. Instead, it indicates that we are to cooperate with God in caring for our world, in acting responsibly to protect and conserve it. If the world is to know justice and compassion and mercy, it will be because we cooperate with God in making it so. The creation story tells us that creation is important, 
not so much because it's what God once did, but it's important because God is still creating. It's God's very nature to create. And the amazing, marvelous, mysterious truth is that God invites us, you and me, to cooperate with God in that ongoing creation. May it be so.